Hello, you're listening to The Send with me, Louise Beale. This is the podcast that talks to TV correspondents about what happened when they covered some of the world's biggest news stories and how they performed under pressure. In this episode, we're talking to Sky News' Jonathan Samuels about his experience covering the Fukushima nuclear disaster. It happened back in March 2011, when a magnitude 9 earthquake hit offshore Japan. Now, earthquakes aren't out of the ordinary there, but this one unleashed a major tsunami. The waters didn't have far to travel to cripple the Fukushima nuclear plant. Jonathan was Channel 5's chief correspondent when he was sent to Japan. Jonathan, welcome along to The Send. It's lovely to have you here. This was quite a story, wasn't it? Yes, thank you very much for inviting me. Great to be here. Journalists love talking about themselves, obviously, uh, so this is uh, a real treat. I've covered lots of things around the world, Louise, when it comes to natural disasters, uh, earthquakes, tsunamis, uh, you name it. But as you say, this wasn't just one natural disaster. It was three all rolled into one. The uh, huge earthquake, the biggest ever recorded in Japan, followed shortly afterwards by this horrific tsunami which crashed into Japan's east coast and then as you say a nuclear disaster as well so quite remarkable from a journalist point of view to be covering three huge stories all rolled up into one and I have to say this happened 10 years ago and it was then the hardest foreign story that I've ever had to cover and it still is the hardest and I've covered many many uh, events like this uh, over the years but it was incredibly difficult uh, for a whole range of reasons which I'm sure we'll go into. So when do you know you're going to go as soon as the story breaks are you immediately on an aeroplane or how does it work? So I think straight away we knew that this was going to be a massive story and that huge numbers of people Uh, had died uh, and tragically it was going to be in the thousands rather than in the hundreds so certainly we knew it was going to lead the program that night but uh, Channel 5 News at the time had very limited weekend bulletins and as I say this happened on a Friday uh, afternoon in Japan Friday morning in in the UK and I think there was a sense that if we sent straight away we wouldn't get any coverage over the weekend so we were going to wait and see how things panned out now in hindsight that was probably a mistake and my philosophy has always been if there's news happening news breaking we need to go straight away you can't dither or hang around you need to get on that plane immediately and i always have my passport in my briefcase even even today uh, as i do a slightly different job in television i still always have my passport with me i always have a change of clothes in the car because i never know where i'm going to end up and there have been occasions quite quite often actually it happened at the beginning of last year with the australia bushfires that i got sent to cover i go into work for for nine o'clock or whatever it is in the morning and uh, suddenly I find myself at Heathrow phoning my wife saying, oh, actually, I'm not going to be home for dinner tonight. And then I might be away for a couple of weeks. And uh, I can hear her eyes rolling uh, down the other end of the phone line. Um, but that's the nature of the job. And, and, and it's very much a case of you want to go, if you're a journalist, you want to go immediately to where news is happening. But on this occasion, we didn't go straight away. And I think in hindsight, that was a mistake because it did lead to all sorts of logistical problems once we did finally get to Tokyo. So, yeah, tell me about those. Why was it such a problem to be there later? What happened when you arrived? And 
is it the case that you can just hit the ground running? I went with a very experienced uh, and brilliant cameraman uh, called Chris Colhoun, and uh, we landed in Tokyo and... Uh, we realised pretty quickly that uh, all the hire cars had had gone. Uh, the roads were very badly damaged around the scene of uh, of the epicentre, so it was very difficult, certainly, to drive to where events were happening. Uh, so Chris and I were at the airport thinking, what on earth are we going to do? And as we were sat there, and again, I remember this uh, very clearly, there was a, a tremor, a, a, an aftershock, and the whole airport started to shake. And those big, big windows that you have at uh, airports looking out over the, the tarmac, they were wobbling. And I was thinking, crikey, you know, the airport's going to collapse. And it was very strange watching people because everyone suddenly froze. We didn't run for the exit or run under tables or whatever you're meant to do in an earthquake. Everyone just froze. Even the locals didn't move a muscle. Uh, and we were all looking at each other as if to say, what do we do? And then people started standing up and making for the exits and then the trembling stopped and everyone sort of uh, laughed nervously and sat down again and got back to whatever they were doing. But I remember the air bridges, you know, the bridges that you walk through to get on board a plane. They were going up and down, up and down, like bits of elastic against these planes. Um, and I've been in, in earthquake zones before and felt aftershocks, but nothing like this. And Chris and I looked at each other uh, and we knew then, even though we'd just landed, this was going to be a very, very tricky assignment. It sounds very much like you and Chris were sort of, well, effectively dumped in Japan and left to get on with it. But presumably you had support from your newsroom in London. I mean, who's making these decisions and how much help did you get from them? Well, that's a good question. And the news desk were always uh, really helpful and brilliant and at the end of the phone. But of course, the time difference didn't help. Being nine hours ahead meant that most people back in London, back at base, were, were, were sort of asleep while we were trying to do all this stuff. Also, it was very difficult to get hold of fixers. Now, fixers are crucial for foreign correspondents because they are people on the ground. They quite often are, are journalists, maybe freelance journalists. Clearly, they have the local language, but they'll be fluent in English as well, so can act as a, a translator. Uh, but we got there and we didn't have a fixer. We didn't even have our own producer. It was simply Chris and myself. And uh, we tried to get a fixer and it was proving really, really difficult. So I phoned up a friend of mine who's also a cameraman back in the UK, Adam. And I said to Adam, look, I'm really struggling here. You know, the clock is ticking. We're already late on this story. And the number of dead, sadly, is rising. And I feel that we need to get this story out as soon as we can. And Adam said, well, I don't quite know what you think I can do from here in London, but I'll do my best. And bless him, he started Googling English speakers in Japan, I think. Um, and about an hour later, he phoned me and said, Jonathan, I found this guy, and he exports from Japan uh, carp, you know, the fish that people collect, and he exports it to Britain. And I was like, well, this is, this is all very interesting, but how's this going to help me? And he said, well, I've spoken to the guy who imports it here in Britain, the British guy, and he said that because of the earthquake, we've stopped all business, but maybe my mate who exports the carp could be able to help. So I phoned him. He speaks brilliant English. He's got a four by four. He's not doing anything and he'd be happy to help. So I couldn't believe it. So this guy, a few hours later, rocks up. Um, a Japanese guy with very great English, actually, really good English. And he was in a, a full-length black trench coat and he had long black hair tied in a ponytail. He looked like something out of a, a sort of a graphic novel. Um, and he had this huge, beautiful 4 by 4 
and he said, right, hop in, let's go. Uh, and I, I genuinely thanked uh, my lucky stars that this had happened because otherwise I don't quite know where we would have been. And we, and we got in the car and we drove through the night, through the mountains, to, uh, to, to the epicentre of the disaster. What was it like when you got there? Can you remember the sort of devastation you must have seen? Yeah, so when we when we finally got there, it was horrific. I mean, it it, it was uh, utterly utterly um, uh, mind blowing to see uh, a whole city effectively flattened um, was quite upsetting, actually. And it is very weird. I remember doing a piece to camera standing on this huge seawall right on the coast. And normally big waves would just get battered back into into the ocean by this seawall. But on the other side of the seawall, so away from the sea, is where all the boats were because the tsunami wave had literally picked up these huge boats, lifted them over the seawall and just dumped them um, in the town. And and even driving down the streets, uh, you'd see fishing boats, you know, slammed into shop fronts. I mean, it was surreal. And, and people say, oh, it's like something out of a disaster movie. And it really is. Um, and you go and see people's homes and you look at the, the, the minutiae of people's lives, like school books, just sort of flapping in the wind, um, a, a table that clearly um, had been uh, laid for dinner, uh, all smashed. And you realise that um, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people have had to leave their homes and seek shelter elsewhere. Um, and it is, uh, it's actually very emotional, you know, and, and, and even thinking back now, um, I, I remember that awful sense of sort of dread at the time, thinking these poor, poor people... And when you're there and you're obviously getting picture, you're filming it all, presumably to produce a piece for your news programme, where do you even start? Well, I think the thing about television news is that it's all about people and pictures. So you're looking for both those things immediately and you start filming straight away and uh, you won't necessarily use everything you film in fact you'll probably only use a small percentage of it but you start filming because you don't quite know where it's going to lead and certainly when we got there there were people uh, climbing over the rubble and you go up and speak to them and obviously at the forefront of my mind always with these stories is that these people are going through the most unimaginable trauma this is by far the the worst thing to ever have happened in their lives and you need to be incredibly sensitive to that. And actually, although our fixer was brilliant, clearly he wasn't a trained journalist. He wasn't used to this sort of situation. In, in his usual life, exporting koi carp, he would never have dreamt of going to a part of the country that had been destroyed in this way. Um, and I think he found it quite hard because obviously we were asking him to go up to people and ask what their story was and why were they scrambling over uh, the rubble of their home and, and, and uh, asking him to ask them very sensitive questions um, that we do as journalists. So I was mindful as well of, of his mental health and, and, and uh, looking after him. So I had a lot of things to deal with. But you are looking for those stories and... You can give all the facts, you can talk about how fast the tsunami wave was moving, you can talk about how many kilometres inland the water went, you can talk about what the political um, uh, statement of the day is, but actually uh, one ounce of uh, empathy is worth a tonne of facts. 
and I think it's about hearing people's emotion and telling those small stories. And how did that affect you and Chris as well? Did you find the emotion getting on top of you or are you able to just focus in and and get on with the job? Well, I think because you have a deadline of a news programme, you are very focused and you almost go into into a tunnel where you know that you're aiming for a programme uh, that evening and you know how much you've got work you've got to do. And it's a lot of work. You know, you've got to edit the footage once you've put it all together. You know that you might have to do a live broadcast uh, at the end of the day around that footage that you've uh, you've recorded and sent back to London. So you are very focused. Uh, the adrenaline certainly kicks in. Um, but funnily enough, I'd, I'd just had my first child. Um, he was probably about six or seven months old when this tsunami happened. And this was the first really big uh, natural disaster that I've covered since having um, my son. And I think before I had children, I was much more hardened uh, than I am now. And certainly when you see other children the same age as as your own or you see other parents like you who have uh, lost a child or have uh, got a child who's been badly injured in some way um, then it really does bring it home and certainly I did find it emotional and I did find it moving and as I say always at the front of my mind is the sensitivity of what we're doing and the importance as well of what we're doing in in conveying people's grief uh, and and the sense of loss um so so yeah it does affect me and i know occasionally um i lay my voice we call it a voice track so you send back all the footage you film but you also send your your voice track which is you reading your script to go with those pictures we send all that back to london and quite often there are times when i'm delivering into the into the recorder my voice and i have to do it three or four times because i'm i'm breaking up um, uh, uh, um, under the pressure of it and, and under the stress of it and under the emotion of it because you're thinking about those people that you've met um, and you've recorded and interviewed uh, and you think about their lives uh, again as you're, as you're recording that track. So it does hit you, definitely. Definitely, I can imagine. And presumably, if this doesn't sound too sort of glib, you must be tired. There must be jet lag involved. Are you conscious of that having an effect on you and what you're doing and and how do you combat that? Yeah, I mean I mean you're right to say you don't you know we don't want to be glib about it. And how I manage and cope and all the rest of it is is sort of almost irrelevant, isn't it, when you look mm-hmm. at the at the misery that these poor people are, are going through. And certainly I'm very aware that I don't want to be tucking into a big meal when you're you know you you, you people next to you are sort of digging through the rubble for their loved ones. So um I'm always very mindful of that. And actually as I say the adrenaline kicks in and you just keep going but this trip was particularly difficult because there was nowhere really to sleep hotels had shut Um, you'd film in the epicenter and then you'd have to drive a long way out to towns that were untouched I mean it was very surreal you'd drive for an hour and you'd see somewhere that was completely normal so uh, it was it was difficult finding places that were open but we did sort of snatch sleep in the car I remember sleeping in the car one or two nights um, we took a lot of food with us. We took uh, ration packs that they give out to the army, which are actually pretty foul, to be honest. But you peel open a tab, uh, the food, it's usually curry and rice or pasta, heats up. It's like a boil-in-the-bag thing and you can eat it. Presumably, as you've already talked about, the nuclear side of things was a constant worry when you're you know, live on television, perhaps potentially fairly frightened about what might be going on and exhausted. How do you hold it all together and give a good performance? Well, I think reporters and correspondents get into a zone just before they do a live broadcast. And if you've ever seen 
uh, news trucks and satellite trucks and reporters next to them at a live event, whatever it may be, a, a royal wedding uh, or, a, or a terror attack or, or whatever, you'll often see reporters um, with their heads down, walking up and down, talking to themselves. And um, I've done it myself and I always do it. And the, what they're doing is they're rehearsing what they're going to say on live television to try and make it as natural as possible, but also to make sure that they get all the points in that they want to get in. Because you can't necessarily read it all from a script. You want to be looking uh, into the lens of the camera, looking to the eyes of the people uh, at home, as it were. So uh, I certainly write down everything that I'm going to say and I memorise it. Uh, and then uh, I just go over it a few times in my head and I get into this zone and I know the cameramen and camera women find this very frustrating because they'll say Jonathan look can you just look at this or can... and I'll, I'll not even hear them because I'm so much focused in that zone on what I'm going to say and making sure um, that I'm I'm word perfect so um it it it's it, it is a skill and it's something that I've learned over the years and I also have little tips um which I give to people who are starting out in, in news broadcasting. And the first thing I always say is write it down. You know, if you're going to mention somebody's name, like the Prime Minister of Japan, you may know it. You may not have any problems forgetting it. But I can tell you that when that camera goes on and when the light goes on and when you're live in front of a million viewers or whatever it might be, your mind plays tricks on you and you could well forget the name of the Japanese Prime Minister. I always say as well, try not to have more than three thoughts in your live broadcast. So I always have three bullet points and I'll have three things that I want to say. Any more than that, your your, your mind sort of tends to wonder um, and, and, and you won't necessarily remember them and then you start waffling and repeating yourself. Uh, and then I uh, always tie my shoelaces nice and tight. I don't know why I do that. I don't know why. I always do it wherever I am in the world. I like to have nice tight shoelaces. Um, and then I uh, look into the lens of the camera uh, and I look into the lens as if it's looking into somebody's eyes. Um, and I think there, there is a bit of an art to that, a bit of a technique. But I, I guess uh, in these strange times, we've all got a bit used to that, looking into the lens during Zooms, haven't we? We certainly have. Has there ever been a moment where you thought, oh, no, you know, my brain is not going to cope with this and something's about to go wrong? And how do you calm yourself down at that moment? <laughs> that happens all the time and that's quite common <laughs> i remember i covered the um the the amazing story of the chili miners i don't you're you'll remember that and um it was probably one of the most remarkable stories of my career because it was uh this horrific thing that had happened um but it had a happy ending um which was wonderful because so many stories that we cover sadly don't have happy endings and yet this one did and we've been in the middle of the chili desert in the atacama desert for a week building up to this moment when these miners came out of of of, of their prison that they'd been in for for months and uh it, it, it obviously the world's attention was on this one hole in the crown that these miners were were popping out of and we'd been pushing the boundaries in terms of what I was talking about before putting my voice track to the picture and sending it back to London because it was all happening as our program was was getting closer and closer so we were pushing the boundaries uh sent it all back to London and then we set up the camera for the for the live element so I'd written my three bullet points uh, I'd gone into the zone I was all ready to go I tied my shoelaces nice and tight the program started the music comes on and I hear the the presenter back in London uh talking and as she's introducing the story, the producer uh, in my ear, Richard, uh, says, Jonathan, um, 
really worrying, but I don't think your report is going to be ready. The editor is working really hard putting your script to the pictures. We don't think it's going to be ready. Well, uh, uh, I, I I almost broke down there and then thinking, we've been here a week. We've built up to this one moment. These miners who've been through hell for months are finally coming out. It's the most emotional moment um, that the world is, is looking at. And we might have missed it. I couldn't believe it. And the presenter read the introduction, said Jonathan Samuels is live in the, in the desert. Richard's in my ear saying, uh, Jonathan, you just need to keep talking until we're ready. But I'm not convinced it's going to happen. And my heart was in my mouth. Um, oh. So I just focused uh, on the story and I talked and I explained where we were. And I said what was happening. And then finally, Richard buzzes and said, we've got it. We've got it. And I say, uh, and here's my report. And I have to say, my heart was thumping. And I've never <laughs> felt so much relief in my life. And uh, the next day on the way home, I went and bought a huge box of uh, Chilean red wine and took it back to London and gave it to the editor, the, the video editor, back in, uh, back in his edit suite. He was very grateful. He basically saved, saved my bacon. You know, there are some people that will go a very long way never to be in that position and would hate to do a job where that happens not just once or twice, but quite frequently. Is it something perhaps you get a kick from? I suppose it is really. I mean, I do I do thrive on it. Um, uh, but what I love more than that is uh, being at the heart of stories that are, are breaking, stories that will change the world, being, uh, I mean, it's a cliche, but having a front row seat as history is unfolding in front of your eyes and obviously the tv presentation side of it is part and parcel of that but i i love a challenge and i thrive on a challenge and there is a real buzz you get from live television and uh it's the same sort of buzz i get if i go and give a a speech in front of uh, a lot of people or go and and deliver a presentation in 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 front of a huge group it's the same buzz i get from being on television and i uh, use the same techniques uh, that i use on television so you know tighten my shoelaces obviously but also <laughs> have um have in my mind exactly where i'm going i have a have a narrative in my head uh, when i'm telling a story live uh, so i know that point a will lead to point b which will lead to point c and i think because i have that narrative in my head i know exactly where i'm going so i don't necessarily need to look at my notes very often um, i have those bullet points written down in case i lose my thread Now, Jonathan was only in Japan for a matter of days when it became clear the earthquake and tsunami weren't the only problems facing the Japanese. The nearby Fukushima nuclear plant had experienced the double whammy of the earthquake knocking out cooling towers and the tsunami flooding the emergency generators. The reactors overheated and exploded. A 20-kilometre exclusion zone was put in place, meaning more than 100,000 people had to leave their homes. The Fukushima disaster ended up being classified as a level seven nuclear event. Only Chernobyl has ever reached that mark. It will take 40 years before the decontamination mission is finished. The earthquake, tsunami and nuclear leak together killed 18,000 people. Being in Japan and dealing with the nuclear side of that story and bringing that element in when it's so unusual, how do you go about managing something like that? Yeah, I mean, it was catastrophic, wasn't it? Um, I remember we went to, um, we checked into a hotel with a with a load of other journalists, and uh, it was when uh, I think the third reactor uh, exploded, 
that people became really nervous and uh, all these journalists who were checked into the hotel suddenly left um, and we all started moving away from the area because we just didn't know at that stage how serious or dangerous it would be and I do remember being being very nervous and actually in hindsight some reporters and some correspondents felt that they were prepared to take more of a risk than we did and some did actually drive towards the exclusion zone and reported from very close to Fukushima in a way that Chris and I decided we weren't prepared to do and it's a decision I still stand by because of course at the time we didn't know that perhaps we we, we could have got away with that and it would have been fine but you you just don't know and, and it's like what I was saying before really it's an enemy that you can't see radioactivity you just don't know how dangerous it's going to be and when we came home uh, we did have to go via an office in Tokyo and be checked for radioactive poisoning and luckily we were fine and and, and there were no problems but um, that's certainly something I've never had to do before and hopefully we'll never have to do again uh, on a foreign assignment be be checked to see if you've uh, got any radioactive material (laughs) in in your body but we, we were given the green light and we were fine to come home. Now, I want to ask you at this point, your wife with her wonderful eye roll, does she or your mother or your father, did any of them call you and just go, you know what, I know this is a good story and I know you've gone and I know it's your job, but actually, you know, this isn't funny anymore. I think you should come home. If your wife had said to you, I want you to come home, would you? Well, well, that's a very good question. I mean, luckily, <laughs> luckily, um, uh, phone signal was so bad uh, and actually non-existent um, for for a lot of this trip because all the mobile phone masks had, had, had come down. Um, I didn't have that moral dilemma. Um, but I'm also very fortunate because my wife is a TV correspondent as well. Um, and we've known each other uh, ever since we were at the BBC and our whole lives have have always been like this, working shifts, going to weird places, having dangerous assignments. Um, So she is incredibly understanding, thank goodness. And uh, she's always actually the first to say, look, you've got to go, 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 go. Um, But I do think having a family does change your um, perspective, certainly. And now I'm in the nice warm studio and I don't go as much as I used to to these sort of places. Not that I wouldn't, and I'm still prepared to go. But I think um, having kids at home does really make you think twice about how much danger you want to put yourself in. Jonathan Samuels, thank you very much for talking to us. We really appreciate it. It's been fascinating to hear about your time in Japan. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Louise. If you enjoyed this episode of The Send, we'd be really grateful if you could rate and review it or perhaps share it with a friend who might like it too. If you want to hear more episodes, then do subscribe. And if you're interested in presentation or media training courses, then please head to middletabletraining.com to find out more. Thank you.